John 17, 17 through 19 is where we're going to be. One last look at this second part of this most precious prayer. John 17, 17 through 19, page 903 in the Pew Bible. I introduced to you the concept of a hook last week. A hook baited with a juicy, wriggly worm is irresistible to the watching fish. A hook is that which grabs the fish and draws the fish in. A hook is that which I'm supposed to use at the beginning of a sermon to grab you and draw you in and arrest your attention and make you want to listen. Here's your hook this week. My sermon is shorter than it was last week. That's your hook. <laughs> Think, thinking of you, Jack. I'm thinking of you back there. You're welcome. John 17 is the God-man at prayer. Moments before his betrayal, suffering, and death, Jesus, the Son, is praying to the Father about that which is of most importance. He has prayed for his own glory. He has prayed for the keeping of his own people. And now he is praying for the keeping of his own people through the sanctifying of his own people. We are talking again about sanctification, and we're going to take one last crack at it this morning as we connect verse 17 Two verses, 18 and 19, and so finally conclude part two of this three-part prayer. We emphasized last week how important it is to understand that sanctification is God's work. Remember, Jesus is praying to God. He is petitioning the Father, asking Him to do something, to sanctify us. So sanctification is God's work. The Holy God cares much about the holiness of His people The work is his, and he will bring it to completion. Amen. That is my only hope, because of Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this this holiness is not an optional thing. You should be clear up front, if you have no interest in holiness, no concern for the pursuit of holiness, then you're just simply not a Christian, right? This 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 is who God's people are. This is what he is setting us apart for. This is what he is about and what he is doing always for and in and through his people. And if this is such an important thing, a life or death, eternity determining thing, it is also then very important that we understand the how of holiness. How does God sanctify his people? And we know now that it is in the truth. It is through the word of God which is truth, but still How does that happen? And what role, if any, do we play in this eternally important business of sanctification? That's what I want to tackle this morning, hopefully in a helpful and practical way. I have made the claim a number of times these, these last couple of weeks that holiness is happiness. Verse 13, Jesus claims that he is working for our joy. We asked the question last week, if that's true, why are so many Christians so sad? And we know that there's a number of myriads of reasons, and let's not oversimplify and minimize. But for many, or again, maybe just speaking for myself, let me speak for myself. For me, much, if not all, of my sadness and sorrow, doubt and discouragement is rooted in my remarkable ability to be all about me, to live as if life is all about me and for me, to be disturbingly caught up with and consumed by self, self self-concerned, 
self-obsessed, self-focused, self-impressed. Self, 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 self is my problem. Self is why I'm often sad. Self is what needs to be sanctified. How is the question this morning? How does sanctification happen and how can you seek and start to be just a little bit less focused on self? Good news, the answer is the same for both questions and we're going to draw that answer from our text. We're going to consider this morning three hows of sanctification or you could call this the three M's of sanctification because I always adore alliteration. Three headings that we're going to work through from our three verses. How does sanctification happen? I'm going to make the case that it happens, verse 17, through meditation. We need to come back and understand what that is and what that has to do with verse 17. Hopefully we're going to be practical and we're going to apply there. Then verse 18, we're going to consider our mission. And then verse 19, we're going to see the foundation of all of this, which is, of course, the Messiah. So the goal this morning is to understand how we are to respond to the truth that God sanctifies in the truth, His Word. What are we to do with this Word that sanctifies? Meditation, mission, Messiah. Meditate on that Word day and night. Seek the good of others by speaking the good news of that Word to them. And do all of that and all that you do resting in the finished work of the Messiah. That's the sermon. That's the how of sanctification. And that's how we get our focus off of the self, which is sadness. Notice that all three of those things are taking your focus off of self and putting it elsewhere. Putting it on the Word, putting it on others, putting it on the Christ. That's the secret. Now let's unpack it in great detail. John chapter 17 If it is the word that sanctifies, let us make sure we read that word. Let us make sure you are checking that word to make sure my words are coming from this word. I'm just going to read for you our three verses. John 17, 17 through 19. This is Jesus Christ, the Son, praying to the Father. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as Jesus Christ has just prayed to you and asked that you would sanctify his people, so we now come and pray to you and ask that you would sanctify us, your people. Father, do that right now through the truth that is your word. Father, do that thing right now which I am incapable of doing and which each and every one of us is incapable of doing for ourselves. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please work through your living and active word to conform us to the image of your Son and to make us a little bit more like Jesus. Father, our minds are many places right now. Our attention is all over the place. Father, for many of us, ultimately, our attention is on ourself. Father, it is so easy for my attention while preaching about Christ and grace and gospel and mind set on other things to do so with my mind set entirely on myself. Father, please help me. Father, help every single one of us to set 
self aside and to fix our gaze upon you through your word. Father, please now work through that word on our behalf for your glory and our good. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Point number one, let's start with meditation. Well, where is that in the text? Great question. We closed last week with a benediction from Colossians 3, 16 and 17. We're going to close with the same one this week. But a benediction, literally from the Latin, is a good word. And good words that are also God's words are blessing words. They are words that, which, that do good. And so we begin our service with a call to worship from the word. God's word is how we begin. We close our service with a benediction. God's, God's word is how we end. And that's, that's very intentional. We're, we're couching and sandwiching everything in God's word with the sermon on that word in the middle. But this is how we ended last week. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? How do you let the word dwell in you richly? And why would you want the word to dwell in you richly? Why is this a command from Paul? It's an imperative, a command. You, all of you, Christians, the church, do this thing. Let the word dwell in you richly. Why? Well, it's because of John 17, 17. It's because of what the word is and does. Remember, in this prayer, this second part, Jesus prays two things for us, which are really one thing. He asks that God would keep us, and he asks that God would sanctify us. But he's actually asking that God would keep us from the world and the evil one by sanctifying us. And the means through which God does that is the truth, which is his word. That Bible you are hopefully holding and checking and reading as I am speaking. So Jesus has prayed for your sanctification, and in so doing, he has also provided you And pointed you to the means of your sanctification. The truth. God's word. How does does reading some ink on a page do anything? How how does this stuff on here go through our eyes and into our brains and do this spiritual, supernatural thing that is called sanctifying? Well, let's not forget also our larger context. Remember, how would you answer? What's, What's the big idea of this farewell discourse? What is the main thing that Jesus is teaching on in these final hours with his disciples? I have argued that the main topic of Christ's teaching in chapters 14 and 15 and 16 is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is why the disciples and we are to not let our hearts be troubled. He is our comfort and our help. So again, don't miss that Jesus comforts the troubled hearts of his disciples by teaching them. He doesn't just commiserate with them. Yeah, it's going to be really hard. This is going to be terrible. I know, I know. It's awful. No, he, he teaches them. And he comforts them by teaching them about the person who is going to be with them. And so who is this spirit and what is he going to do that is so comforting? 1417, he is the spirit of truth. 1426, he will teach all things. 1526, he is the spirit of truth who will bear witness about Christ. 1613, he will guide you into all the truth. 1614, he will glorify Christ for he will take what is Christ's and declare it to us. Remember, the work of the spirit is the word. 
He inspires the disciples to record and write the truth infallibly. But then even today, now for us, he illuminates us to understand and apply that inspired truth accurately. And so sanctification is God's work. The person of the Godhead who primarily does this work is the Holy Spirit. And the means through which he works, that sanctification is his word. One of my main ministry concerns, one of the biggest burdens of my heart uh, for myself my family, and for you is to figure out how to effectively communicate to you the wonder of God's Word and to convince and compel you to begin to take seriously your responsibility to make great effort to work that Word into your heart and life. And I'm I'm struggling with that currently, and I don't have time to do a whole biblical theology of words every single week as much as I would like to But we've seen again and again how God's words are the very basis of reality itself. It's not atoms, it's not quarks, it's not strings, it's the word of God. We've seen that when God speaks, it is. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Or I want you to consider this one for this week. Still trying to convince you here of the power of words in general. Consider even your words. Consider Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What's the power of the tongue? What's words? Words are the power of the tongue. And words, even your words, have the power of death and life. Why is that? It's because of you were created in the image of God. You were created like God, the God who speaks, the God of words. And if your words even have some sort of power of life and death, how much more than God's words? That's why it is the truth that sanctifies you. This this word, this, this Bible, these printed words on a page are the living and active word of God. And God's word is how he has wired his world to work. It's the foundation of of revelation and of relationship. Guys, words are everything. Consider how kind, affirming, encouraging words from someone, especially someone that you respect and look up to, maybe someone of authority or significance. Consider how such words can literally sustain you. And strengthen you and nourish you and feed you. I mean, that's what the word encourage means. Core is the Latin word for heart. And it was used often of uh, inner strength. So to encourage is supposed to literally mean to, to instill strength through the power of words. Our words can actually do something for one another. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So again, use those words well, right? stop with the sarcasm, stop with the joking that is just disguised, tearing down, edify, encourage, let's be more careful with our powerful words. But the point here is to see our words for what they are, to help us more appreciate God's word for what it is and is able to do. If it is truly living and active, if this is life creating and sustaining, if it is the means through which we are sustained and sanctified, what should we do with it? Let the word of Christ dwell 
in you richly. That's what. But we still haven't really answered how. Well, here's the simple how that I've been encouraging you with. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by reading it, thinking it, praying it, and speaking it. I'm using that again and again and again. It's, I'm trying to help the three of you who read my emails uh, with, with that idea. Right? Reading, thinking, praying, speaking. Again, I don't care about the emails. The point is to get you in the word. Whatever will get you in the word, that's what matters. Oh. Whatever you must do to take active and aggressive steps to let that living and active word dwell in you richly. And I am here, again, commending to you the means of that being the often preached but little uh, practice art of biblical meditation. I am commending to you here the truth that you have a role and a responsibility to play in your progressive sanctification. You have work to do. I began working on this sermon back on Tuesday. I was going to do a whole other message on sanctification. I guess that I'm basically doing that. But I started working on a sanctification, just kind of like basic, simple outline. And I had point one with sanctification is God's work. We did that last week. Remember the importance of understanding your positional sanctification. You are set apart by God for God, entirely by the grace of God. We are saints. We are sanctified, and that is God's work. And point number two was going to be sanctification is our work. And here we're talking about progressive sanctification, this lifelong, ongoing process through which God is shaping us and molding us and making us holy, conforming us to the image of of his son. Remember, that's all sanctification is. Sanctification is the process through which God is making us like Jesus Christ, the image of God, the, the perfect person. And we have a role to play in this part of the process. It's just Philippians 2 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. You see how those things go together. We are to work out that which God has worked in. We are to live out what Christ has lived and died and rose again to put in. So it's because we're entirely passive in our positional sanctification. But we are very much active in reliance on the God who works in us in our progressive sanctification. And since he does that work Through his word, we are to be very much active with and in that word. We simply cannot do the Christian life without the word of God. You simply will not find peace and satisfaction and rest and joy without God's word. Many of our problems are rooted in our lack of engagement with God through his word. And God's word has never been truly tried and found wanting. But it has often been not truly tried, found hard, and then quickly abandoned. It's like running. Most people hate running. And I get it. But I used to hate it, in part, because I had never actually really tried running. I love when the girls are helping Melissa teach class, because I can talk about everybody as much as I want. Um, But I've been running with the girls some. And when we run together, at the beginning, it's just... Misery. It's awful. It's terrible. 
And I tell them, and I rehearse and remind them of this because it's true for me, is that the first mile is the worst mile, right? The first mile is the worst mile. Now, that's generally true, right? If you are running an ultra marathon, the 80th mile is probably worse than the first mile, right? So again, general principle. But the first mile is terrible. I have never once gone on a run when I did not want to quit in the first mile. Never one time. My brain is still asleep. My legs are still asleep. This is awful. I hate this. I probably shouldn't do this today. I should just turn around. Every single time. I would never run farther than a few hundred feet if I based things on how I felt or how easy they seemed. I always feel terrible at the beginning. So a lot of people try running, they start, and they quickly stop because, let's be honest, it hurts and it doesn't feel good. But why then does anyone do it? Good question, you're probably thinking. But it's first because even though it doesn't feel good, it does good. Right? There, there is a goal. There is some good that is being pursued through this hard thing. Physical fitness, mental health, even. I run in part because it helps me think better and sleep better. Again, there's all kinds of possible reasons. But there's this amazing thing that happens. This thing that doesn't uh, feel good, but does good, once consistently practiced and pursued, starts to feel good. You've heard of this, this runner's high thing. I didn't experience it for a long time, but it's actually a thing. I'm serious. It's actually a thing. And the amazing thing is that God designed it to work this way. At a certain threshold, there is a release of chemicals in the brain that results in a feeling of euphoria that relieves stress and blocks out pain. And it just feels like you're flying sometimes. The runner's high is actually a thing. Or the flow state people write about kind of in other areas of life. What I want you to see here is that sanctification is like this. It, listen, it starts off hard. The means of sanctification, which is the reading of and the meditating on God's word, is like this. It starts off hard. And for many of us, and for myself for a very long time, we never push past this initial difficulty. Right? This early, like, this is hard. I'm not getting any of this. This hurts. Uh, nothing's happening. But we never push past that initial part and get to the flying and the joy that is there waiting for us in the presence of God uh, through his word. Again, all I want to do here is to commend to you the practice of biblical meditation again. All I want to do is to encourage you and say that, hey, if you're starting to seek to begin this process and you're finding it really, really hard, exactly. Right? That, that, that's how it works. Don't stop. Uh, don't give up. It's, it's difficult and it's designed that way because we're sinners. But meditation is what I think we are called to here in response to verse 17. Start with Psalm chapter 1. That's your application this week. If you have not yet memorized Psalm 1, do it. Psalm 1 is six short verses. You could memorize it in a week. And they can be life-changing verses. And they have been for me. I engage with media and entertainment different because of Psalm 1. I educate my children differently because of Psalm 1. I do lots of things differently than I was doing them because of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Stop. So sanctification, remember first, it's to be set apart. 
Jesus has said in 1714 that we are not of the world. That's Psalm 1-1. Not these things. Not receiving our influence from the world. Not of the world. Jesus is praying for our sanctification in the truth in 1717. That's Psalm 1 verse 2. But the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. It's right there. As plain as day. Every single one of us wants to be blessed. The very first psalm tells us everything that we need to know. Not this, verse 1. This, verse 2. Most of us are doing verse 1 and not doing verse 2. And then we're wondering, man, why? Why is this so hard? Why am I so frustrated? No, set apart from the world, set apart for God and blessing through the means of his word. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. This is how we are sanctified in the truth. This is what I was missing for a very long time. And this is what I think many of us are probably missing. I was helped many years ago. When I first discovered uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Uh, He was the first to really help me to start to understand and appreciate and implement this idea. What is meditation? Well, you know that you talk to yourself, right? You know that you're constantly talking to yourself. It's not just crazy people who talk to themselves. You talk to yourself. You are always talking to yourself. I am always talking to myself. To myself. You are always evaluating, analyzing, interpreting, considering, and you are doing it internally. You are talking to yourself about yourself and about your life and about your circumstances. There is this ongoing, always silent conversation. You have a voice inside your head producing a constant verbal stream of thought. You talk to yourself. What are you saying to yourself? Lloyd-Jones famously puts it like this. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself? Instead of talking to yourself. You see what he's saying. We have this tendency. Things are going on. We respond to those things. We get frustrated with those things. And our mind just runs. In all kinds of directions with us. And this, this, this conversation just kind of happens to ourselves. And we listen to ourselves. And the sinful self that remains. What Lloyd-Jones is saying here is, no, what, what this is required, what meditation is, is we begin to talk to ourselves, taking an intentional, uh, kind of active approach to taking our soul in hand and speaking to ourselves like David does. Why so cast down, oh my soul, put your hope in God. Right? That's David talking to himself. This is what meditation is. It is a constant consideration of the truth And then a constant application of that truth to our day-to-day lives. We are to be always thinking on the truth and then always bringing that truth to bear on our daily lives, our thoughts, 
our words, and our deeds. And this can transform everything. And you know that your problem is not ultimately your difficult circumstances. It is how you view those difficult circumstances and how you respond to those difficult circumstances. Epictetus, cool name, famous Greek Stoic philosopher, said men are disturbed not by things, but by the view which they take of them. That guy wasn't even a Christian. And he gets this basic idea. It is our thoughts that drive our emotions. And that is why it is so important that we understand that a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is one who has been made new. Philippians 2.5, a Christian is one who has the very mind of Christ, who is thus, Romans 12.2, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. And listen, minds are renewed only by words. The Christian mind is renewed and transformed by the word of God. The sanctification that is God's will for us, in which we are made holy and truly happy, happy, happens only by and in and through God's word. So how are you doing today? And what are you doing with God's living and active life-transforming and joy-producing word. Again, I just don't know what to say. Read it. (laughs) Constantly read the scriptures. I know reading is hard these days. I get it. If you struggle to read, listen to the scriptures. We have a wealth, an abundance of resources. You can listen to Kristen Getty read God's word in her wonderful Irish accent. You can read Brian. You can listen to Brian Davis kind of rap God's word uh, to you in his very cool uh, voice. Just, you have all kinds of opportunities to engage through God's word. How are you going to engage with God through his word? We need to start by being done with the we don't have time excuse. I know we're New Yorkers and we're super cool and important and we work really hard um, and we're very busy. I know. But we do have time. If you have time for the worthlessness that is social media, then you do have time for the preciousness that is God's living and active word. All of us make time for our priorities. What are your priorities and what's your plan? Who can you turn to around you for help? Mike and I would love to help. If that's intimidating, there's someone around you that, that cares about you, that is probably going through the same struggle. How can you talk to one another once a day for 10 minutes about a chapter of Scripture? How can you just read a psalm a day? How can you begin to work through the Gospels and consider the glorious person of Jesus Christ? Right? What can you do to take simple but intentional steps to engage with God through His sanctifying Word? Remember, this is... Your application is not just read the Bible. That's not what we're saying. Not just read the Bible. We are commending to you a lifestyle of joyful and transformative engagement with God himself by the means through which he reveals himself to us and relates himself to us. The means through which he is present with us. And, Psalm 16, in his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. You know, again, I, I say this a lot. I don't know why. I don't know how not to. But what if that's true? What if that's actually true? 
but in God's presence, full joy, forever pleasure. Like, wouldn't we pursue that if we believed that? What, what an opportunity and, and, and what a privilege that we have that God has provided for us a means through which we can relate to him. Relationship is life. Horizontally, we find our happiness in our relationships with one another, but ultimately, vertically, relationship is, life is found in relationship with him. And so it begins with seeking him um, in the means through which he has provided and the means through which he is present. So read and consider why and how you read. Right? Are you reading it to know God? To know the truths that he has revealed in his word for the purpose of applying those truths to your life. As you read, always be asking yourself, what does this teach me about God and his glory and grace? What does this teach me about me and my sinfulness and sadness? What does this teach me about Christ and his substitution and salvation? Three simple questions to help you engage meaningfully with God's word. One of the practices I have found helpful is to make sure and single out one truth from my time in the Word to take with me throughout my day. Write it down if you need to. We're sanctified by the truth. In making sure I have zeroed in on one truth and then taking that truth with me, I'm now coming back to it again and again and again and providing myself more opportunity for more sanctification through that wonderful Word. And as I've read those truths and the, and the various truths that I've memorized, you know, I, I, if I'm being honest, I hate memorizing Scripture. I, I hate it. Like it's, it's hard, and it's work, and I want to quit constantly, and I struggle with it. My brain just does not do it very well and very easily. But it's so good, and it's so important. And I can commend to you regularly in the midst of my miserableness and my grumpiness and my sinfulness, all of a sudden, here comes God's Word. Oh, Oh, I got to go apologize to my wife. Oh, I have to go apologize to my kids. Oh, I, I don't get to feel like that or say that or do that because here's what God's word is saying and reminding me of. That's, that's God's living and active word by the Holy Spirit being used in the moment to, to sanctify me in my sin and to conform me to the image of God's son. You need that word for that process to work and happen in you. And that's, that's all that meditation is. It's talking to yourself with God's truth. That's God's living and active word by the power of the Holy Spirit doing its work to sanctify us and make us holy. A whole life holiness. In Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit with God's holy word. Listen, you have everything that you need. We have everything that we need if we would just use it. If we would just fix our focus on God's word, we would find it less fixed on ourself, which is what all of us most need. Meditation is one of the key hows of sanctification as we seek to move from self-fixation to self-forgetfulness, from self-focus to Christ-focus, from self-service to other service. And that's point number two. I want to spend months in verse 17. I'm not sure how long your patience would allow that. So let's look at verse 18. Let's consider mission. Let's see how these two things connect. Let me read verse 18 for you. Jesus prays this. As you sent me into the world, 
so I have sent them into the world. Short and sweet, pretty clear. Throughout John's gospel, the sentness of the Son is frequently emphasized. We just saw it up in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 5.30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's a great question to be asking yourself, by the way. Whose will are you seeking? All right, this thing that I want to do, this thing that I am seeking, this good thing that I am pursuing, whose will are you ultimately seeking in the pursuit of that thing? That is a, it's a dangerous question. Be careful with that question. It's humbling me significantly right now. But Christ, the Son, in whose image sanctification is conforming us to, always sought the will of the Father. Again, I wonder how little we are actually seeking the will of the Father, and I wonder how much this is our problem and the source of much of our sadness. The design is so important. A teleology is the fancy word. I just want to impress you every now and then. The Greek word telos just means end or purpose or goal. Teleology is the study of design or purpose. Things work better when they are used according to their purpose or design. It's the basic idea. BJ was playing frisbee with a bunch of the kids yesterday, and it went great, and they all enjoyed it because that little plastic disc was designed to soar through the air at its intended target. Only once did things go wrong when that target ended up being Tessa's face, but she was, she was okay. But had VJ, the Mac lover, decided that MacBooks are so superior to everything else, this is on my brain because my two-year-old just broke my wife's computer, and those things are expensive. It was a great opportunity to practice what I was preaching. I wanted to rage and I was not allowed to rage. Ugh. But say, MacBooks are the best. I know you Mac people. I don't have a Mac. But say since they're so superior, VJ decided that they were also superior to Frisbees. Right? And he attempted to play Frisbee with a MacBook. Well, we would have ended up with broken faces and broken MacBooks because MacBooks, as great as they are, are not designed to be Frisbees. It's just obvious. It's simple. It's dumb. You were not designed to be oriented around yourself. You were not designed to be for and about you. It is in your very design and nature. God created you to be outward oriented. He created you to find fulfillment in fellowship with him. Orbiting and orienting around him. It's your design It is your end and goal. It is your purpose. And thus, it is only there that you will actually find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction. And this is why it's so important that we move beyond a simplistic understanding of sin as doing certain bad things. Now remember, sin is fundamentally, sin is the inward, selfward turn. Right, Augustine, it is, uh, and then Luther, it is incurvitas in Say, fancy Latin for it is, it is being curved in on oneself, focused primarily on oneself, meditating entirely on oneself, living entirely for oneself. This is the fundamental orientation of the world. 
This was our fundamental orientation until God's grace intervened. And this is our lifelong struggle as we seek to increasingly live out what God has put in. In what direction are you oriented? I can, looking back after the fact, right, hindsight, 2020, I can always, by the grace of God, look back and trace certain struggles and difficulties and frustrations, and I can always connect it and trace that to an inward turn and focus on self and sin that results in all of these other things. And when that starts to change by the grace of God, I can always track that and see that with by that grace being slowly turned back out towards the Lord and toward his people and toward others. What direction are you oriented? Whose will are you seeking? What is your mission? What are you for? We began to tackle this a few weeks ago from verse 10. Remember, moral, therapeutic theism, the default religion of most Westerners these days. Uh, The third basic belief of this system is this. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's that's the therapeutic part. Life is all about me. It's all about being happy. It's all about feeling good about myself. That's what you are for, according to the world. No. Wrong. Design. That is way too little and way too disappointing of a thing to be for. For you are not that great, and I am not that great. How sad if the goal and purpose of my life was never anything bigger than me. Me. No, I I need much more than that. I need something much bigger than that. I need verse 10 where Jesus had said, I am glorified in them. And we made the case that you are for glorifying. To glorify is to make manifest, to reveal, to demonstrate, to show and shine forth. That's what Jesus, the Son of God, does for the Father. He makes Him known. And that's your mission as well. That's your end. And that's a purpose big enough and grand enough to fulfill you and satisfy you and give you great joy as you are reoriented around the one for whom you were made. The all-glorious, indescribably good and beautiful one. Let's be clear on that. The, The problem with our sin is that we are turning away from perfect goodness and beauty and love to us, right? To me. That's utter foolishness, right? Sin makes us stupid. I, you know, I could be more excited about beating Zelda than I could be a part of glorifying God through the salvation of sinners, through the preaching of the gospel. Like, what's your stupid thing that you find more significant and more important than this? How gracious is our God that he not only saves us, but that he then sends us. You are sanctified from the world for God, set apart from the world, but then sent to the world. We are sanctified in large part to serve. We are not saved from hell so that we can go on living our lives however we want, according to the standards and dictates of our culture for our own fulfillment and satisfaction and success. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, we were saved from idols to serve the living and true God. How are you serving 
the true and living God. If you are saved, then you are sent. That's all the word apostle means. The verb there for sent is apostello. An apostle is simply a sent one. Now, it's really important to understand the important difference between the big A apostles, right, the 12, and then Paul. Uh, there are no more big A apostles. That's really important. We had a young lady who was attending here a while ago and who left and instead decided to follow online the Apostle Catherine Crick. Can't compete with that. I'm not an apostle. I can't cast out demons. I can't dish out healings or offer up anointings. Um, this, I'm not an apostle. This woman's not either, by the way. For there are no more apostles. Right? To be an apostle, you had to be with Christ. You had to be a witness to the resurrection. These were the men specially set apart to be the foundation of the church and to uh, write God's inspired word. Um, so again, no big A apostles. And anyone who claims to be a big A, big a apostle, false teacher. They're often very successful and wealthy, but still false. So be wise and discerning. If you see someone attach the name Apostle, the title Apostle to their name, run. Right? Run the other direction. You're a joke. You should put like Apostle up in front of my name there. In front of that. No. No Apostles. No big A Apostles. But little a Apostles. That's you. And that's me. If you are in Christ, you are sanctified. And set apart. And you are a little a apostle simply in the sense that you are sent. You have been set apart for a purpose, a mission. You are for the glory of God through the speaking of the good news of the glorious Son. And that's something big that is worth living for. We are representatives of God Himself. We are here to make the invisible God known. That is what you are for. First Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, sanctified nation, a people for his own possession, that, that's the four, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is that what we're living for? Listen to it again. Don't miss what we're called to. We get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Excellencies. That's what we get to talk about. We love to talk about excellent things. I could talk about the excellent ribs yesterday. I could talk about the excellent desserts and Marjorie's excellent cake and all that. I love talking about excellent things. These are darkness to light things, death to life things. That's what we get to talk about. There's nothing more excellent than that. We should love to talk about such things. I was struck to the core by a Spurgeon sermon on these verses this week. He says, among many things, he says that we are called to labor, not comfort. Oh, man. Come on. That's like, that is my chief idolatry. It's comfort. And he's writing that in the middle of the 19th century when it indoor plumbing. There's nothing comfortable about the middle of the 19th century. We are in the culture of comfort. And so I need to be reminded that I am called to labor, not comfort. I have work to do, and it is a blessed work, an excellency's proclaiming work. If I could just get over myself, 
get my eyes off of myself, get my mind filled with the truths of God's word, get a heart convinced of the goodness of the gospel and the lostness of everyone around me and everyone in this room that does not know Jesus Christ, if I would believe those things, I would be hungry and desperate to speak. Church, we are sent. This is what we are for. And we should see it as the biggest and greatest privilege that the Creator, Savior God, not only saves us, but includes us in what He is doing. Includes us in the blessed work of calling people out of darkness, into light, out of absence, into presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. So please, pray for your witness. Pray for my witness. Pray for the corporate witness of Woodside Community Church. Pray that God would save sinners through the intentional, persistent, prayerful testifying to the truth of God in Christ. Romans 10.14 How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Side note. I love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God more than anyone here. But be careful and never allow yourself to believe that the glorious doctrine of God's sovereignty makes your witness and mission optional or unnecessary. I'm tempted sometimes in the back of the new world, you know, God's sovereign. God wants to save this guy. He'll save him, right? No. (laughs) That's dangerously wrong. And it's actually the opposite. God is sovereign down to the tiniest details of your life. His providence is a particular one. He has purposely placed you in the family that you are in. He has purposely placed you in the job that you are in. He has purposely placed the co-workers around you that are around you. He has purposely set you on the train where you are. He has purposefully whatever you want it to be. He is a purposeful God in his providence and why has you pla- has he placed you in those spots mission the glory of god in the holiness of your life in the witness of your mouth as a testimony to the reality and the grace of god what are we doing with what god has given us what are we doing with where god has placed us why are you here and why are you wherever you're going to be tomorrow and where god has placed you What are you for? In Christ. It's mission. We've got to start living like it. And we will find ourselves richly blessed as we do. Remember, our problem is self. Our problem is sinful self-focus. And it's as our eyes are open to the eternally big problem that is the sin that separates everyone around us, the sin that is eternal death, and to the eternally glorious truth that we have been saved from that deserved death It's then that our eyes start to lift off of self and our problems and get focused on others and their true eternal spiritual problem. And it is there that you will increasingly find satisfaction and rest for your soul. Why is that? Well, it's only because of Christ. Point number three, very quickly, the Messiah. Don't let the lengths of the point Uh, be any indication of the importance of the points. This is the most important of the points. Look briefly at verse 19. Let me just show you this. Here's the last thing Jesus says in part two of the prayer. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in 
truth. Again, I went with Messiah here because, again, alliteration, of course. But also because of Exodus 40, 13. God tells Moses to put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. Remember, Messiah just means anointed one. Anointed means set apart, consecrated. There were three groups of people that were anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, we have a brother here, pastor from Pittsburgh. Uh, welcome. He said, be, be encouraged. He's been preaching on prophet, priest, and king for two years, right? Two and a half years. So, hey, I'm not doing that bad, guys, in John 17. We're all slow. But the point is, and what he's doing and why he's drawing so much out of that, is that all of that is pointing to and fulfilled in Christ, who is the prophet and the priest and the king, the anointed one, the Christ. And our verse says here that he consecrates himself. And remember, check the footnote. It's the same verb as the second phrase. Jesus literally says, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And that's one of the reasons why we know that sanctify cannot only mean make holy, because Christ already was and always is perfectly holy. When he says sanctified here, he means he was set apart for a specific purpose, a mission, which is what? Don't miss how the verse begins. Verse 19. For their sake. That's everything. For our sake, he does what he is about to do. We are verses away from his betrayal, 18.5. We are verses away from his suffering, 19.1. We are verses away from his death, 19.30. And all of it for their sake. For your sake. And for my sake. And it is here that we have most clearly confirmed for us the idea that we were made to be other-oriented. It is here that we have most clearly confirmed that we will find joy in the worship of God and in the mission of God. For it was for the joy that was set before Him that Jesus endured the cross. What joy? Us. His own exaltation and His own glory through the salvation of us, His sinful people. That's why He's dying. That's His mission. That is what He has come to do. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If only we could see our sin for what it is, as the trading of the all-glorious and good God for that which is utterly worthless. What an affront and offense that is to the all-glorious and good God. We made ourselves His enemies. We treated He who is worth everything as if He is worth nothing. There is no greater injustice but God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, still comes for us. In His grace still sets His love upon us and takes on flesh for us and lives perfectly for us and dies substitutionally for us and then rises again all because of our sin. All because the wages of sin is death. For us to be with this perfectly holy God, something had to be done. And as sinners, we could do nothing. We could do nothing to earn the perfect righteousness required by the perfect God. But church, Christ has done everything. And so he cries out, it is finished. The Messiah has accomplished his mission A mission by which he came not to be served, but to serve others. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many, for others. What joy there is to be found in this eternally good news. Are you finding joy in this good news of grace? Maybe you need to fill your mind with this good news of grace. What joy there is to be found in being privileged to be a part of speaking this eternally good news to others. This is what you are for. This is why we are here. But we struggle in our sin and remain so prone to think still that we are for ourselves and for happiness. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen, let's be clear. It doesn't mean that we are not for happiness. That just means that our true happiness is found in living for him who died for us. You have tried everything else. You are trying everything else right now. And it's not cutting it. The pursuit of self will always end in disappointment and depression. Try this. Try Jesus Christ. Eyes off self is the solution to our sadness. Eyes on the word through meditation. Read, think, and pray God's living and active word. And see your eyes shift upward and outward. Eyes on others through mission and witness. Speak. Who can you speak to this week? Speak the good news of grace that saved your soul from hell. Eyes on Christ through a constant consideration of his person and work. This is how sanctification happens. Praise God that it is his work and that he who begins this good work in you will bring it to completion. But praise God also that you have the responsibility and the privilege to play a grace-bought, spirit-empowered role in that work. Start with meditation and mission. Start with doing all that you do in light of the Messiah, who lived, died, and rose again, that you may know him and live and find peace and purpose and joy and satisfaction. Church, that is the ultimate end of sanctification. His very joy in us. And that end will be worth all the difficulty, and all the effort, and all the work. Let me close you in a word of prayer. Father, help us, please. Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. Father, we are reminded here, your word is so clear that we have things to do in response to the finished work of Christ and in response to your initiating and saving grace. Father, we do none of those things in our own power. It's not that you begin it and we finish it. Father, it's you all the way through. But how amazing that you have called us to work alongside you, um, to live out uh, that which you have worked into us. Father, please sanctify us. And I pray that part of that process today would be giving us a great zeal and energy and desire to pursue holiness through your word this week. Father, we ask that you would continue to help turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn our eyes to you. Again and again and again in scripture, you command us to think 
upon these things. You, you tell us again and again that the things are unseen or are where our gaze is supposed to be fixed. Father, please help us to lift our eyes to you. Father, please help us as we leave this comfortable and, and safe uh, place and we go back out into the world where things are hard and difficult and we are quickly reminded again of uh, things that aren't going the way that we would like them to go. Father, encourage us with your word. Father, may the truths of your word continue to edify and sustain and give us joy even in the midst of sorrow and and hardship and difficulty and suffering. Father, as you sanctify us individually, Father, sanctify Woodside corporately. Father, make us a people, a holy people who exist together to proclaim your excellencies, who exist together to bear one another's burdens and to love one another well. Father, these are big things. These are big asks. And we cannot do these things apart from you. So, Father, please now, I ask that by your spirit, you would work on our hearts and our minds through your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.